Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Dave Lago, the Product Manager for Distance Hosting and Compute Center. Dave, thanks so much for taking the time to join me. Thanks, Jason. Glad to be here. So we are talking about something called Vulkan, which is very exciting. This is the idea of another uh, DevSecOps platform. So let's start with there. Dave, give me the basics. What is Vulkan and, and how does it work? And, and what are some of the things we need to know about it? So Vulkan consists of DevSecOps tools offered as a software as a service, as a SaaS service uh, at DoD Impact Level 5 to support uh, software development and automation projects you know, across DISA and also in the Department of Defense. You know, the problem statement, as important as you know, software modernization is in DoD uh, and DevSecOps, and we've been talking about this you know, for seven or eight years now, uh, these tools are not as widely as available, you know, available as we think they are. Um, t- case in point, take a, an agile planning tool. Uh, Jira comes to mind, for example. Um, there are others, right? These are super mainstream in commercial industry. Uh, you know, what percentage, if I had to guess, of commercial software projects are using some type of agile project uh, planning tool? I'd guess, you know, somewhere around, uh, you know, 80%. You know, what's that equivalent number in the Department of Defense? You know, I don't know. I see a lot of uh, waterfall, you know, traditional uh, integrated master schedules. You know, I don't see a lot of, of agile, you know, product planning uh, tool use uh, in the mainstream DOD, you know, not so much in the centers of excellence, but just your mainstream command. And uh, if I had to guess what, what percentage, you know, are using something like that, I'd guess it's it's less than, than 10%. So we don't want uh, the DOD to be, you know, the IT, you know, upside down from Stranger Things. Uh, we want to have all the mainstream tools that uh, commercial industry has, and we don't want them to have a bunch of barriers to entry. And we also want to be able to offer them at a low cost so that everyone uh, can afford them. Vulcan consists of, of four things. We have uh, Git.mil. Git.mil is our MVP enterprise code repo. Uh, we have 1,900 users across DoD that are using that. It also consists of, of Jira, the tool I mentioned before, which is a pretty widely used agile planning tool. Uh, Confluence, uh, the wiki everyone's familiar with, and then GitLab Premium that builds uh, DevSecOps uh, pipelines. Uh, we've run the numbers. You know, we understand that you know the the most cost effective way to do this is to consume SaaS directly from the cloud provider. But in some cases, they haven't reached you know completed all their FedRAMP and DISA provisional authorization and other compliance requirements. So this meets that need in the interim. Uh, Git.mil is available today, and the rest will be uh, available later this winter. Okay, so a couple different pieces there. Uh, interesting enough, now, did you guys do any sort of, I'll say, survey or anything to, before, as you were putting together Vulcan and the idea came up to say, okay, who's using some of these tools? Are they really out there? Because one of the things is you don't know until you know, right? We can all kind of guess, but how'd you kind of come to the conclusion that that the use of these tools just weren't widespread. Well, I don't think we did an official survey, I'll say, but I can just tell you in, you know, in working in DoD, uh, you know, widely that there have been breakthroughs, things like DI2E, you know, that have made these tools more available. But I think if you ask anybody, you know, in typical Department of Defense, uh, do they have access to something like like Jira? I think the answer would be would be no. So it's really what you're trying to do here is fill a need or fill a void in the in the overall scheme of things and then make it easier for folks to to obtain them. Because, as you said, maybe the most effective way is to consume through a SaaS direct provider. But that, as you said, can take time through FedRAMP or just a IL requirements. So is Vulcan definitely not a 
gap effort, but but it's it's definitely trying to fill a gap. If, if, is is that the best way you would look at exactly. it? Exactly. Yeah, and we want to take away the barriers for entry, right? So so as you point out, they need to go through FedRAMP, right, uh, and get their DISAPA, right. That's a challenge. There's still an acquisition challenge. There's still a compliance ATO challenge, right? So we want to make these tools just more readily available for mission partners. In case if folks aren't maybe familiar with the different tools, you went through them very quickly. Just let, let's back up. Uh, Jira, you said is an agile planning tool. Maybe go through what Confluence is, what the GitLab Premium is. And so folks can get a sense of if they want to use it, how could they use it? Jira, we should all be familiar with, you know, kind of what that, you know, the scrum and the sprint planning session looks like. And so that's where you, you know, manage your, your user stories and you assign story points and you're tracking what your team is doing, right? That's especially important in this remote, you know, kind of distributed workforce that we have today, right? So um, that tool is critical. And then uh, Confluence is, you know, is a great tool for documentation, right? If you're doing software development of any kind or, compliance work or process work, or you need a way to, you know, to share information easily without sending out a bunch of attachments and things like that. So it is a, it is a widely used uh, wiki tool. And then GitLab Premium, I think we're all familiar with GitLab, the open source version, right? Which is pretty widely used. Uh, I think it's mostly used as a, as a repo, right? Where you're storing your code, but GitLab Premium has a lot more uh, functionality with it you know, where you can you know, do your builds and, and do scans and, you know, do um, not just continuous integration, but continuous deployment, right? And uh, use GitLab runners and deploy into your environment. So, you know, this is kind of the starter list of tools that we have. You know, I think that we will look, you know, over time, you know, to expand that. But, um, you know, this is a pretty good, a pretty good starting point. I was going to actually ask that exact question. Uh, is it, is it, the first set of tools and more are coming. So, so appreciate you giving a heads up because I'm sure you'll get a lot of calls now from vendors who, yeah. hey, I want to get in on that. How did you decide to, to launch Vulcan? Uh, I know you mentioned the gap, you want people to use them, but give me a little bit of background as well about, about this process. Jason, I'm already getting those calls, you can imagine, but <laughs> but so we really want to focus on on adoption, right? So, you know, I think in the in the first year, you know, of this, um, we really want to make sure that, you know, we are, we are bringing value and we are getting them, you know, used. So that is step number one. And then beyond that, I think we're going to look at, you know, what other tools does it make sense? There's other automation tools that we could, uh, you know, build into here and you know, other things, chat ops, you know, or other things that, that come to mind again, in that category of, you know, really widely used commercially, barely scratching the surface, you know, in the Department of Defense. So those are a couple of things that, that come to mind. Now, Vulcan was launched roughly in October officially, but I think it was something that you all have been talking about over the last, I think, year or so. Uh, you mentioned that there's about 1,900 users uh, in the git.mil. You've mentioned the current capabilities, but what's the user set? What are you guys just trying to drive familiarity yeah. with it? Are you trying to drive people to understand, hey, it's out there, you can use it, and then and then this is how you use it? What, what's, what are your current kind of short-term goals? I mean, there's clearly a need for enterprise code repos uh, in the Department of Defense. You know, I think that's been clear. Uh, Forge.mil, right? Uh, you know, there's lots of uh, there's there's several of them out there, but typically they don't persist, which is another kind of challenge there. But it essentially started Git.mil as something that we were using, you know, internally, right? And then uh, you know, word kind of in a grassroots way by word of mouth, uh, more and more people started hearing about it. And then suddenly we had this, 
you know, user community that was uh, over a thousand people. And it's something that connects into our uh, identity infrastructure that we have, right? Something called global directory, right? So it's, uh, you know, CAC authenticated and uh, clearly meeting a need because, uh, you know, it's, it's growing uh, rapidly and, uh, you know, all across DOD, uh, you know, Navy, Army, you know, DISA, you know, Fourth Estate, it's a pretty broad uh, set that's using it. And not just Git.mil, but some of the other kind of tools, like how are you kind of getting the word out that Vulcan is, exists? What's the cost? How can users use it? Give me a little bit of background about it. If I'm in the Navy or Army and I want to come and use it, what do I need to know? You know, a really cool thing about working at the Hosting and Compute Center is that we're all about standing up. Uh, new capabilities pretty rapidly, right? So, so this is something that began uh, this summer, right? So, it, it actually started, you know, around the June or July timeframe. Not the Git.mil, but the you know the re- remainder of it. You know, so, so this is something that's moving pretty rapidly, and we are starting to get the word out, you know, to folks through AFCIA and and the media. Uh, we have our website hack.mil, right, which has a lot of information about the product, and you can you can contact us uh, uh, through that. Um, but we are we are still besides Git.mil, we are not yet you know awaiting our ATO, which we're expecting later this winter, and then we'll be you know really more at a at a IOC you know type capability. Uh, so at this point, we're kind of getting the the word out you know ahead of time. Okay, I think that's good to know that you're still it's not ready to be used today, but it's it's shortly it's coming. As you said, you'll hit the IOC. When folks do get to use it, what do they need to know about using it? Is it there's a cost involved? Uh, I know just as a service provider, so uh, how does that work? Do, do you get a sense of what what that cost will be? How, how should folks plan to use it? What are some of the things that they need to know about once you do get that ATO? You know, we really built this with a lean team, right? So, so this this product was built essentially and an accredited by a four person team. Right. We did that by using a DoD Cloud IAC, right, which was you know, a product that builds out your cloud environment. Right. And then we used uh, something like we used Air Force Platform One Big Bang, right, for, for container automation. Right. So this was built by a small team. It will be, you know, operated, you know, at, at OM by, by a larger team. But the goal here is to have low cost that we can offer. You know, you know, this at a at best value. So uh, I don't have the exact number. It's going to be on a per seat basis, uh, but but that's something that we should have uh, relatively shortly. Appreciate you brought up platform one. We'll get to that in a second. But before that, you mentioned the container automation. Is there anything more you can talk about why you chose that path and and, and maybe even some of the benefits around containerization as as, as part of this effort? I think there's a lot of reasons, right, for uh, for containerization, right? The the microservice, you know, one is one that that comes to mind, right? We don't have this big, you know, monolith. Um, I think that it it allows you, you know, portability also, right? If you have a container workload, right, you can, uh, you know, move that between cloud providers, right? Uh, so I think that that's a big selling point. And then, um, you know, just the ability to, you know, move faster, right? Uh, you can deploy a container. Right, uh, a lot faster than you can, you know, set up kind of, you know, a traditional, you know, bare metal, you know, kind of server. And so I think that those are the three, you know, kind of benefits to to container automation that that, that we see. And uh, this platform was actually built all with automation, right? So uh, it's not something that we're going to be logging in, you know, into you know the the containers themselves or anything like that. Uh, it's something that we're you know deploying uh, entirely through automation. I appreciate. It. I wasn't trying to get into the weeds there. I just think. You no, know, you don't hear. There's a lot of interest, I think, in, in the broader community about containerization, but not a lot of 
uh, folks in the government seem to be using it yet or getting there. So when you mentioned it, I thought it was, it was important to kind of delve into that a little bit. Dave, on that note, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can continue our conversation. My guest today is Dave Lago, a product manager for DISA's Host and Compute Center. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Dave Lago, a product manager for DISA's Host and Compute Center. Today, we're talking about the new program called Vulcan, a DevSecOps offering from DISA. You had mentioned Platform One earlier. Uh, there's a lot of DevSecOps or similar platforms that are out there. Black Pearl's one, obviously Cloud One, Platform One's another. Army's Futures Command has a software factory. First of all, why did you think that a we needed another one? <laughs> I think there's a there's a concern over too many software factories across DoD. And, and B, we'll talk maybe a little bit about how's it different, how's it similar, how'd you borrow from some of those previous efforts. So Vulkan you know, is not a platform, right? That's the big difference. We're not going to host you know, your applications or your workloads. Uh, if you like the software factory analogy, we're not a software factory. You know, we would just be the assembly lines, right? So, so big, big differentiator uh, there. And you know, could we have joined forces and re-architected one of the platforms and gotten reciprocity and changed their business model? Because by the way, we're a defense working capital fund. Potentially, maybe that could have been you know, an approach, but but at the end of the day, this is not a huge investment by DISA, right? We talked about you know this being a best value, you know, and built you know by a small team. So the way we extract value from the other platforms and cooperate with them is you know by sharing things. We're, we're using the Air Force Big Bang baseline, like we talked about, Platform One baseline, and you know participation in you know the CIO's efforts, right, to get the Software Factory Coalition to get us talking and sharing information and. You know, we spent a lot of time uh, talking to the different software factories that were out there. And, you know, I think that that communication is is really important. So I think generally folks will hear, well, you're DevSecOps, you're building software, Army, whoever has a software factory. So, so help me understand the, the difference here is folks can come to Vulkan and build build an application, build a capability, whatever it is. But when they launch it, when they put it into production, that's when it goes back to, again, the Army's platform, the Navy's platform, wherever. Is, is that accurate? Yeah. So, so we're not going to provide your environment, right? So, so we kind of look at Vulcan as the glue, right? And to put it in terms of the hack portfolio, right? We have something called Stratus. Stratus is our private cloud and you can connect it up to that, right? You can use container as a service, right? Another uh, container hosting platform that we have uh, within Hack. Uh, you can connect it to your existing, you know, on-premise uh, environment, or you can use the commercial cloud. Uh, if you want to use the commercial cloud, that DoD Cloud IEC project that I mentioned about builds out your cloud environment, you know, in in, in hours, and you know, comes with a, an ATO. So we kind of view this as you know, meeting customers, you know, kind of where they're at in their cloud journey, right? Uh, nobody is entirely containerized, right? Nobody is entirely in the cloud. You know, everybody is somewhere in the middle. I think that's an important piece to put out there because I think it's easy for folks to get caught up in. Uh oh, another software factory. So, so Dave, I appreciate that. Is there things you learned as you put this together from other attempts, whether again in private sector or or, or DoD or government at large? What were some of those things, the best practices, if you will, that you said, okay, we want we want to make sure Vulcan does this or does that. I kind of want to fix it on the first question you had there about the uh oh, not another uh, software factory. If you don't mind to go on a, a tangent there. So you know, I'll give you my my perspective on that is that I think that we're a little bit too focused on that number, 
right? To me, the number you know, is just a number, right? What really matters, you know, is are they operating efficiently and are they they're being, bringing value? And that's really what, and helping, you know, DOD modernize its software. The number of software factories, you know, I, I think that's that's less important. The number I wish we could keep track of, to be honest with you, is I wish we kept track of all the, you know, how many legacy applications do we have, you know, in the Department of Defense that are so old that we can't put them in a container, you know, and we can't move them to the cloud, right? Because that number would be a big number. I think that number would be, you know, in the tens of thousands. So that's the number, you know, that that I'm more focused on. I appreciate the tangent. I think it's 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 an important discussion to have because you're right. I mean, people get focused on kind of the shiny new object is well, how many shiny new objects do we need when when really the focus maybe from your perspective should be on how many old dull objects do we have that we need to shine up because that's really what's impacting mission. So exactly. I, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, but what are some of those lessons or what some of those best practices you did bring into Vulcan? I think it's still important to highlight not just that you have these tools that are used in the commercial sector, but the way it's set up, the way folks can use it. I mean, you talked about value and efficiency and effectiveness, all those key words. How are you ensuring, how are you even measuring those things? You know, I think it's practicing what we preach. So uh, we built this, you know, using DoD Cloud IEC and, you know, the tools that are out there to be as, as efficient as possible. And, you know, we're standing up DevSecOps tools and we're going to follow, you know, DevSecOps you know, processes, right? So, you know, I think that that is a, is a big, a big story and a big win from this. I always gravitate towards, you know, being able to deliver, you know, capabilities with, with small teams, right? I really like, you know, I think AWS has the concept of the, the two pizza team, right? Where we have small teams and we're delivering, you know, capability in an agile way, you know, I think that that, you know, those are the, the, the two big things. And then hosting and compute center, I was formerly with the, Cloud Computing Program Office, and uh, we helped to stand up, you know, CVR, right, which was the O365 teams that was stood up, you know, rapidly during COVID, right? So I think that there was, you know, a lot of lessons in, in you know, rapidly standing up, you know, an enterprise capability like that in the Department of Defense uh, and it being successful. And we want to we want to apply that here as well. I know your colleague Sharon Woods would be very proud of you that you brought up the two pizza team. That's something we hear quite often, not just from her, but from uh, folks across the board. All right. So you're waiting on the short term, you're waiting on your ATO, then folks can start using this. I know this is not even officially initial operating capability, but what does FOC look like? Where should Vulcan uh, evolution look like, if Dave, if we have this conversation in, say, a year from now? It really comes back to adoption, right? That first statement, right? We want to make these tools mainstream. If you come back, Jason, uh, you want to talk to us in two years and nobody has JIRA, you'll be, I will look at it like we have failed. So, so we, we really want uh, to get people, you know, using these these tools. And uh, if that's successful, then, you know, we'll talk about, you know, adding new things and, and uh, you know, meeting other needs, but we really want to get this, uh, you know, going here uh, DOD wide. And one of the things about this is, again, looking at what applications and how you can modernize them and how can you can do it in a way that is either containerized or, or, or piece here and a piece there and, and, and kind of have that continuous development, continuous integration piece. That's, that's what you're trying to really push towards. Folks can use JIRA or they can use any other tool that's very similar to JIRA, but, but you just want them to use these modern tools to make software development better, faster, cheaper, more secure. 
Absolutely. You know, and there, and there is a, um, you know, personal preference part of this too. You know, I was talking to my wife's cousin, who's a developer and he's a younger guy. And he was saying how frustrated he was that, you know, that he doesn't have access to, you know, the tools that he knows and loves, right. For, for software development. And we just got to make it the same experience if you're in DOD or if you're in, you know, commercial, because once we, we do that, you know, we start to lose people and we need, you know, the, the best and brightest uh, for, for DOD's challenges. Dave, I've very much enjoyed learning about Vulcan. I'm going to ask you to maybe connect the dots to the bigger picture. The hack, the hosting and compute center at DISA issued the vision. They have a transformation. They talk about being an agile organization. Where does Vulcan fit into that bigger picture? Help folks understand and connect some of those dots. Yeah. You know, so, so we have a uh, strategic action plan. Uh, you can go on, on hack.mil's website and learn all about that. As I mentioned, you know, really lucky to work, you know, in a place that you know, has so much transparency, you know, in their vision. And, you know, as part of that, that transformation, we definitely fit in on the, the efficiency and being able to, you know, deploy capabilities faster, right? The, the automation uh, piece of that. So those are like the, the, the big, the big pictures there. And uh, this is something that, you know, is going to go in, in Hacks portfolio and just be another accelerator, you know, for, for adoption and, and help customers, you know, modernize their software. And I think one of the things that I think not just the hack is doing, but really just at large is really trying to give those tools to agencies, to the DOD uh, military services and, and defense agencies, so they can move a little faster. Uh, do you, are you getting other questions? I mean, I know you're focused on, on Vulcan, you're not necessarily focused on the bigger picture, but but as you hear from agencies who are interested in using Vulcan and or some of these other tools, is this now really the goal here is about education? Hey, this is available. Hey, you can use it. Hey, you can, uh, you know, take those dull objects and shine them up in the right way. Is, is that really what you're going to yeah, be focused and, on? I guess? And, and, and to me, you know, the best way to make change is to put the tool in their hand. You know what I mean? So we can talk about, you know, agile and we can talk about DevSecOps, right, theoretically and all that. But if you really want to change, you know, somebody's approach to something, uh, let them do it. That's the best way to do it, right? So that's really what, what Vulcan is all about, is, you know, putting these, hand, these tools, you know, in the hands of our, of our broader development community. Dave, I've learned a lot and very much enjoyed our conversation. So let me thank my guest. Dave Lago is a product manager for the DISS Hosting and Compute Center. Dave, uh, thanks again for taking the time and, and teaching us about Vulcan. Thanks, Jason. Really appreciate it. We have to take a break. When we come back, we'll continue to hear from DISA. I will play excerpts from their recent industry day. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. For the next two segments, I'll play excerpts from DISA's recent industry day. First, you'll hear from Sharon Woods, the director of the Hosting and Compute Center at DISA. What I wanted to do was frame for industry and small business how you can help us and partner with us going forward. So JWCC, contract aside, all of the mission partners and customers that are looking to get into that contract are in very different stages of maturity on moving into the cloud. The role of the system integrator is really important. And I don't just mean large businesses. I really mean any company that can support a mission partner in framing their application, migrating the application into the environment so that they are really ready to operate. We're taking a decentralized approach, meaning that 
Rather than having a single integrator contract, mission partners need to be able to reach out to many companies in order to support them in that journey. And so I think it is really important and incumbent on industry to connect with different mission partners and customers to understand where they are in their journey and help them get into the contract environment. I encourage you to reach out to us because, of course, we have information about which customers are ready to move or thinking about moving, and we can help just industry understand who those mission partners are. But again, please connect with the mission partners themselves. I think the systems integrators and contractors that can support mission partners are going to play a really, really key role in making that contract successful. The other efforts I wanted to talk about, again, some of them are listed here. So, for instance, infrastructure as code. So OTAs are spoken about quite a bit. One of the other contract vehicles I wanted to bring to your attention are called CRADAs, Collaborative Research and Development Agreements. You often see them in labs, but there's nothing that precludes any office or agency from using those. Oftentimes, there are zero-dollar agreements. Um, Sometimes they can be at cost, but what they tend to be is a collaborative effort between the government and that partner to develop something together. And then oftentimes there are opportunities, financial opportunities following, but infrastructure as code is a really great example where we have three and we're in the process of having four different CRADA agreements with the cloud vendors, and we developed uh, infrastructure code pre-accredited, pre-configured baselines that help create cloud environments in two to four hours rather than weeks or months. That's a really critical capability so that mission partners can get into the cloud quickly. Uh, That is just an example of where something like a CRADA is a great opportunity to partner with industry or small business on what are those other type accelerators or things that will help mission partners use cloud in a way that is smart, in a way that gets them in there more quickly. And we were having a conversation earlier with the media roundtable, and I wanted to share it with you all is that, you know, what would we share with small business to help them understand how to partner with us? And I think one of the most critical things is help us understand the area where you are really specialized, because we are focused on doing efforts in six months or less to get to a minimum viable product. That's something that the hack has done now repeatedly. And so the more we understand your business area and that you're able to articulate, this is what I can deliver, and this is how I can deliver it in six months, and this is ultimately how it scales. We've proven that that model works, and so I I think it would be good for you to connect with us. You can go to hack.mil. There is a contact page uh, so that we can talk through some of the different opportunities. The other area uh, that's not explicitly mentioned here, but I do want to mention it, is OCONUS Cloud. So what do we mean by that? JWCC, because of data sovereignty rules, the data centers that we use from the commercial cloud providers have to be on U.S. soil. So they are in the United States. But the warfighter operates across the world. And there are needs, whether it's because they become isolated geographically, because communications go down. Even when you look at something like Hawaii, at any given time, they could become isolated from a communication standpoint, which means they can't reach back to the cloud environment that's in the United States. So what do they do? 
And so Oconus Cloud, one of the areas we're looking at is with Stratus, our private cloud environment, is can we deploy that? Should we deploy that overseas in our data centers that are in Germany, that are in Japan, that are in Hawaii? But how do those capabilities work with commercial cloud? How does hybrid work with private cloud and commercial cloud? So I'll give you an example where uh, data replication or failover capabilities become really important. So for instance, the application may be in the main cloud environment, but that there is continuous data replication to Stratus in the private cloud environment. So if communications are disconnected, the application has the latest copy of the data and is able to continue to operate, essentially creating local cloud regions across the world. And that is also inclusive of tactical edge capabilities where if an environment, whether the warfighter is in an environment that is deprived of good communications or a particular region, I mean, even Germany, when you think about current conflicts, could become isolated from a communication standpoint. How do you continue to have the application with that data run at the point of collection? And sometimes that means using tactical edge capabilities where it's smaller form factors that still provide hosting and compute, maybe not as much as what you would get with a broader commercial cloud, uh, the main environment. But if you think about something like tactical assault uh, kits, where you have to be able to track troop movement locally, uh, it's critical capability. Those folks are not in a place where communications are dependable, and so you need to be able to have tactical edge devices that those applications can hang off of. But then back at headquarters, they also need to understand where troops are moving and where they're going, and so when they are connected, that data can then flow. But if they become disconnected locally, you're still able to operate warfighter movements. And so I, I try and throw out, I know this is a bit of a, um, a scattershot of different things, and what I'm trying to convey to you is that there isn't a one-size-fits-all for these different kinds of capabilities and needs. We are looking at hybrid cloud, we're looking at Oconus cloud, we're trying to understand cloud accelerators, and all of these are opportunities, whether it's through subcontracting with our existing contractors, using something like a CRADA, um, even new contracting efforts, if that's what makes sense. Uh, but I think all of these present opportunities at a broad brush level um, for us to partner with you. And so whether it's through the website, whether it is at our table today or connecting with me directly, we really encourage you to connect with us. Um, and, and there is a hack action plan that nests underneath the DISA strategic plan. I encourage you to read that because it really shows what we're thinking about. And so as you frame your discussion with us, it gives you a really good point of reference. We have to take a break. You just heard an excerpt from this recent industry day. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. For this next segment, you'll hear from Brian Herman, the director of the Cybersecurity and Analytics Directorate at DISA. He also spoke during DISA's recent industry day. He starts off by talking about how zero trust will impact DISA and DOD at large. Really, that zero trust mindset potentially could change what our organization looks like, uh, but it does have wide-ranging effects. 
and it affects other parts of the agency as well. We are partnering with our DOD net team for the Defense Enclave Services. So as we roll out capabilities to to be the, the enclave provider for other fourth estate organizations, we're rolling that out with Thunderdome and Zero Trust in place. We're doing the same things with our JSP partners down at the Pentagon. And so so we have to think about it from an enclave perspective, but we also have to think about it from the backbone perspective. And so that is kind of my vision of where the future is. The challenge for us, as I you know kind of put the challenge in front of my portfolio managers in each of those areas, is to be the thought leader in your space. Uh, just because we've done something for X number of years doesn't mean that's still the same thing we should be doing. The threat has changed. The technology has changed. And so as industry partners, what we need to understand from you is, is where are the things that we're doing no longer relevant, no longer maybe efficient ways to solve those problems? But I think it's important to, to say we don't necessarily all have the thought leaders in those areas now, but the challenge for them is to come out and engage with you, understand the, the changing threats, and help chart a course for our future. So in the, in the security enablers group, we are modernizing DoD PKI. It's easy to say, it's really hard to do. So we work with our NSA partners and we're trying to overcome what I would call legacy mindsets in terms of controls. This is a, a key area and, and the way we've approached it historically has been to have physical separation of this equipment and physical separation of the individuals that had responsibilities on that equipment. And that just doesn't work in, a, in this pace, the fast-paced environment that we're in. It doesn't work in a cloud environment. And so we can't be efficient. It really costs too much money to deliver PKI. And so we're partnering with NSA to try to see how we update that rule set so that we can actually achieve what we're trying to do with, with PKI. And I already mentioned how that's sort of fundamental uh, for zero trust. We've put in place some, uh, some insider threat capabilities as well. You'll see things in here that kind of fit alongside that scenario where we're, we're trying to evaluate the, uh, the status of an endpoint with things like automated patch management and things. But ICAM is, the, uh, is kind of that shining star in this space. It doesn't happen without PKI. And, uh, and, and we, we have a capability out there. We have, as the director mentioned, we have in excess of 150 applications that are currently using the Global Federated User Directory, our identity provider for PKI right now. Uh, and we have a backend that is automating, it. the DOD folks will like this, we're automating the 2875. It's, a, it's called automated account provisioning, so forget the paper that we've had historically. And that feeds a master user record that has a list of everything that Brian should have access to. And so if something happens to me, if I try to access something, you can say, what, what does he have access to, and, and maybe we need to change that. Uh, and so, so this is a key set of things that need to happen in the uh, security enablers uh, division. So I expect uh, we'll have a little test on this uh, after. Um, <clears throat> no, actually, they, they actually dropped the heading on it. But, uh, but what I want you to take away from this picture is, is um, this is essentially the high-level architectural view of, of uh, PKI, how it works on the unclassified as well as classified networks. We have a cross-domain solution in the middle there. And we have things that have to handle uh, both people and non-person entities uh, because we want to understand whether a device should be trusted uh, in this scenario as well. So this is, this is the complexity. When I say DOD uh, uh, PKI modernization, uh, it's really easy to say this is why it's hard. 
I would also say that in, in a couple of areas that we work, the, the tools or the skills that are required to do this work are exquisite. PKI is one of them. Cross-domain is another one. Uh, so if you and your team have those skills, I want to talk to you. That's what gets me excited. If we can go directly to the folks that have those skills, we can make some real progress. Uh, endpoint, uh, we talked a little bit about it as well, but we have uh, endpoint capabilities uh, that are out there, comply to connect. It's been a little disappointing from a, an adoption perspective for the department. We're using the tools, but it's not reporting back the status of, of everybody's device uh, to let us know whether or not they are compliant. But ultimately, our goal is to, is to, is to deny access to DOD networks, to do, deny access to, uh, to applications if your device is not something that we can trust. Uh, and, and so we're going to be making a little bit of a chain course correction in terms of, of, of how we license that capability. Uh, but it is, in fact, I think uh, at the early stages of a success story uh, in that space as well. Insider threat has got a little bit of uh, changing uh, landscape. Uh, we do it for, for DISA and for some of our, our terrain uh, supported customers. Uh, it's, uh, it, we think it, the, the best way to handle that, we have a good capability that's in place. But it's important for the folks that are doing the, uh, the uh, insider threat uh, analysis to understand the mission of an organization. If you're too far removed from the mission, you, uh, you in all likelihood would have, uh, would have trouble understanding whether or not something's a threat. So, If you have uh, been following Zero Trust at all, uh, you've probably seen the, uh, the DOD's Zero Trust reference architecture that the department has published. We also have a maturity model associated with that, and there's no, no less than 152 elements that we think need to be addressed in order to achieve a, a satisfactory level of zero trust. And, and that, that really aggressive timeline to do that is between now and 2027. That's going to be a daunting task for application owners, uh, for data owners as well. We also have uh, in that space, we've historically been defending against the number one threat vector for, for uh, cyber has been through email. And, uh, and we've used the EEMSG program uh, that, that does that. We're trying to move that capability into the cloud where email is now uh, and, uh, and make sure that it, that it meets the needs as we go forward as well. Uh, Cross-domain is, as I mentioned before, another one of those exquisite areas where we need help. If, if you have that kind of experience, we're also looking at how that changes as the, uh, the JWCC contract requires cloud vendors to have cross-domain capabilities within their own uh, infrastructure as well. Uh, the DNS hardening, and, and uh, we have a responsibility there for the entire department, uh, and that's a follow-on contract I don't think is too complex, but I think it's something that's important as we look at, at what is going on in the department, uh, how we defend against the, uh, the evolving threat in that space. Uh, I mentioned cross-domain again. I, I think that that just can't be can't be overemphasized how how challenging that space is to make sure. And if you think about it, that's an element of the perimeter. When whether you're being able to go from the unclassified networks to the classified networks or the reverse, how do we make sure that we're not allowing threats to progress or classified information to move uh, inappropriately from one domain to the other? We also have a, uh, a cyber development um, professional services and portfolio management contract, and that's a big kind of umbrella that allows us to have program support folks in each of the, uh, the divisions within the cyber development, uh, cybersecurity and analytics directorate. 
that's a place where I think we can use uh, help, not just people that understand how to how to do program support, but also people that understand the uh, the mission space that we're working. Probably uh, many of you are familiar with the uh, the ACAS uh, uh, compliance assessment. So that's a scanning capability that we have to make sure that workstations are in compliance as well. Uh, gateways uh, also, like like uh, cross domain and other elements of the perimeter. Gateways are an area where we uh, have to make sure that we protect and, and defend the network. I guess if you want a, a, a good kind of scenario, we know that in, in light of uh, recent events in Ukraine, that there's, there's additional you know, effort to try to look at whether we have vulnerabilities. Uh, we've been, obviously, we've been in the thick of this for a long time, uh, but we know that that's, that's something that, uh, that any state actor is going to come and take a look at. So. So with all of the things going on, you would expect to see that as well. Uh, the last one on this slide I think is interesting, cloud-based uh, Internet isolation. That basically is to, to virtualize the browser. When you go out uh, from a DoD workstation and, and go on an Internet site, uh, you're actually just kind of seeing a picture of that capability. Uh, and, and, and that's a, a, a fantastic capability that we think is going to allow us to to sunset some other capabilities, uh, potentially, or, or resize them uh, because the threat is somewhat diminished. Uh, CBII is a success story. Uh, we have uh, we reached 2.4 million users on that capability this uh, past fiscal year. This year, our target is, is 3 million, uh, and then next year, we should complete the DOD-wide implementation at uh, approximately 3.5 million. Sharks here. Uh, this is a another place where where we you know obviously need some uh, some really uh, skilled assessment. So this is the uh, the security software that we use at the internet access points to, to, to do you know to identify vulnerabilities and to do auto, automated mitigations. Uh, and we're interested in commercial alternatives to the capabilities that are out there as well. Uh, there's some promising stuff in that space that we're uh, we're hoping is is going to be helpful, but. Uh, Again, you know, as we as we look at that as a, an element of our of our boundary, uh, that's something that probably needs to be modernized. And we're uh, really still just in the final stages of moving that capability from NSA to DISA. Defense industrial base network. So uh, this is actually a capability that allows us to uh, or allows our, our defense industrial base partners to identify vulnerabilities that they they may have found uh, and share that with other DIB partners for the DOD as well as across the federal uh, space. Uh, this is, a, uh, I think, a good capability that probably could use some amount of modernization as we go forward. That's all the time we have for today. You just heard an excerpt of a speech by Brian Herman, the director of the Cybersecurity Analytics Directorate at DISA. He spoke during a recent industry day. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.